Hey, welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Winning Momentum Podcast with your host. That's me, Scott Sinclair. Great to have you here. And we have a special guest for you today, Jeremy Weber, a speaker, strategist, founding member, and director of brand Im- implementation at Brand Builders. Uh, Jeremy has over 17 years in his career. Career, He has founded, sold, and helped to grow multiple companies. He's worked with personal brand strategists, has supported New York Times, best-selling authors, authors uh, TED speakers, celebrity influencer, Jeremy, a Shark Tank investor. I want to hear about that. Believe it or not. Believe seven, it or not. <laughs> Seven-figure entrepreneurs across many industries. He's a founder, founding member and senior leader within Brand Builders Group. He has supported the launch and growth of one of the fastest growing personal brand strategy firms in the world. Has worked. Uh, his work has spanned leading uh, leading a team of 25 plus strategists, overseeing the platform, supporting 500 plus personal brands, managing the company's global partner network. Uh, he's a thought leader in technology. He's spoken to audiences over uh, with over 15,000. Uh, listeners in that audience or audience members sat on advisory board or sits on advisory board to a global software company with over a billion dollars in revenue. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Scott, it's good to be with you. Coming to us, I hope, from uh, Nashville, one of my favorite places on earth. Yeah, down south here in in the south. So yeah, it's, it's actually quite pleasant in Nashville right now. So it's kind of like this weather I'd like to bottle up and keep around year round if we could, but not so fortunate. <laughs> Jeremy, give us, um, I, that was your brand builder background that I just went through the current iteration of Jeremy Weber. Talk, talk to us about um, prior to that, your entrepreneurial background, because you have some, and that would be interesting to this audience as well. Yeah, for sure. So I don't know how how far back we want to throw it here, but um, yeah, it's interesting. I grew up in a family uh, where my dad was a professor, you know, university professor. So education and academics were always, you know, really a high priority for us growing up. And um, you know, I was pretty good in school, but I but I also um, you know was a pretty good athlete, and I played a, a ton of soccer growing up. And so those two things kind of really led me to to my college days where um, I played soccer in college. That was a big part of just life in the early days when I could run a lot longer, a lot faster than I can now, for sure. Um, but I studied computer science in school, and, and I knew early on that I wasn't going to make my career playing professional soccer or anything. I was pretty good, but I wasn't nearly that good. Um, and so what's interesting is from I think because of my dad and my older brother and academics and just kind of career and, you know, making sure you had your stuff figured out was kind of a priority at an early age. Um, I can think back of as soon as I started college, I really had a pretty clear idea of what I wanted to do post-college. And um, and so I studied computer science in school. And so I was working in the you know, learning about technology, coding, database administration, all those fun, nerdy things um, back then. But um, it was really in this location-based technology field that I was specializing in. So the official term is geographic information systems. We probably all know it as Google Maps on our phone or Apple Maps or whatever. Like there's many, many consumer use cases for location-based technology. 
But I was working with that tech in more kind of mass, you know, kind of large sectors like public sector or utilities or, you know, like really every sector of the economy has advanced use cases for that technology. And so that was kind of the space I was in. But um, so kind of I studied that, you know, coming out of college and knew right away that I wanted to plug in to that industry. And so what was interesting is I was doing a lot of deep technology work, deep tech work. So writing software programs, large scale, like enterprise systems, like architecting big enterprise systems, database administration, all that fun stuff. But it was in a public sector setting. I actually worked for the state of Tennessee uh, right out of school. And so uh, there was, there were a couple, you know, there was good and bad uh, in that time of my career. If I can think about, um, you know, reflecting back on it now, the good was that I, I, was, you know, had the space to really think deeply about things. So you can probably relate to this guy. Like when you get out into the private sector, definitely if you start your own business, it's like, go, go, go. Like there's just like not a lot of time to just sit around and ponder and analyze, you know, it's like, we're getting after it. We're always going. And what was cool is that that public sector environment had space Right. So it had space to kind of do what you want with it. Now, some people use that space to like goof off and like, you know, take advantage of the system. But um, for me, I was very hungry and passionate about the work I was doing. So I had space to go really deep on some really big, complex problems. And it was great because I got to kind of sharpen my technical skills, um, working on big, large scale kind of technical solutions. Um, and so I, I kind of sharpened my technical abilities. I had space to go deep on some concepts. Um, but the drawback was that naturally it didn't lend itself to kind of that entrepreneurial, you know, kind of venture, right? You're in a public sector environment. And so that's where I was at this inflection point, um, looking back to where I there was more I wanted to pursue. Um, and I had that entrepreneurial bug in me. Um, but, but I wasn't able to really pursue that in the space I was in, but I had the space to kind of go deep and see some gaps in the market. And, and that's where, you know, really looking back was that first entrepreneurial venture, right? Stepping out into the unknown. And, um, and I can even think back to the day of, sitting in my our old house like I had a home office even though I wasn't really working out of it that much uh, then and I can remember back to the night where it was like am I going to do this or not and basically it was I saw a gap in the market around some software that um, could be developed to kind of automate and streamline some kind of um, you know some big aspects of this technology and the way data was shared uh, between people and and I can again I can remember back saying like do I want to do this do I, I see the opportunity but am I going to go after it and probably the best decision I've ever made because that decision right there led to me kind of like spinning up my first business around that software I had developed licensing that software and kind of the evolution of things that we'll get into further but how um, old were you at the time you know, and did you have a family. Yeah, well, we didn't have any kids, so it was just my wife and I, but yeah. I was married, and um, and so this was probably in, I was probably in my mid, like 27, 28. Okay. 
And and yeah, was I it, were you in a financial position to take that risk, um, or were you sort of like were you fortunate enough to say, okay, well, I'm going to give this a shot, and if it doesn't work out, there's lots of jobs for my skill set out there, so it's no big deal. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. So what's interesting is um, I. Yeah, I mean, strategic or not, I was in a position with my public sector job where there was no remote working at this time. So it was like you went into the office, right? So there was no moonlighting on the side. It was basically like I had to go in nine to five every day or whatever, but I would come home and I would work on this new venture at night. And so there was definitely some some uh, mitigation of the risk there where it wasn't like, Hey, we have income coming in and now there's no income. And it's like, Hey, let's go do this. So that obviously helped a tremendous amount where I was like, look, I believe enough in this where I'm going to invest all of my free time. And so, you know, we didn't have any kids, thankfully at the time, because that would have been even more stressed. But my wife, she, you know, like didn't, we didn't get a whole lot of quality time, you know, cause it was like from the ground up building <laughs> that software then, you know, I had never started a business. So there's all the things we're just trying to figure out, like, what are the formation of the companies and, all, you know, like all that stuff that's non-technical. Um, so it's just a lot of time, but it was, I believed enough in it um, and was and had enough energy and excitement around kind of the entrepreneurial journey uh, that I was, I was excited to do it. And I put in long hours and, and then it got to a point where, you know, I brought that to market and it, it made sense to exit. And and that's when right. I exited out of that public sector position and, and kind of licensed that software and eventually sold it. And, and people have to remember that listening now, people have to remember that back then, this was before being an entrepreneur was cool. This is when being an entrepreneur yeah. was terrifying. Just, yeah, <laughs> right. You, you weren't so being uh, told to side hustle to work at night. There was none of that conversation going on in the world you came up with that on your own so yeah yeah and that's i think reflecting back on it it was i think in part was just something about the the drive for something more like that entrepreneurial bug let's call it but i think maybe an an equal part was um a deep down um belief and excitement around the technology and 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 the problem that this was going to solve in the market right. and 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 a, and a deep down belief in it and and to be totally honest with you Scott like I um I would not have seen that opportunity if I was in any other setting I firmly believe that because I feel like things are so busy now any other um, setting other than the public sector position that gave you an opportunity to work your eight hours and be calm and reflect on things. Yeah, exactly. Things. Or, be or, creative. Or, just, or you think, yeah, or you think of yeah. like um, university settings where they're doing a lot of deep research, right? Like yeah. I, I think those are very different environments than the go, go, go environments. And I think there's, there's places for both of them. Right. But my, my reflection on it is that to see to see problems or to see things that very few other people see, you most people don't see those with shallow thinking, right? And just glancing at things, right? It takes really analyzing and pondering and and looking at things from lots of angles and being able to go deep yeah. on stuff. And you know, if you're just in an environment where you're spread thin, like you naturally, it's hard to do that. 
What I love about this is you took a position that you had in the public sector that for you, it sounds like didn't have a, a purpose in and of itself in isolation, but you took that opportunity to turn it into a life purpose for yourself where your job at the time was a part of that solution, a part of a way to drive you to your purpose, right? It paid the bills that allowed you to work at night, mitigate your financial risk, but you didn't you didn't do what a lot of uh, young people these days are doing, which is just saying, ah, I'm, I'm just going to check out. I'm going to quiet quit. I'm not going to spend, you know, the extra effort to make this work. I'm just going to go live my life and hang out with my friends and uh, travel and do whatever. I'm going to live without a purpose. And, yeah, <laughs> but that's not what you did. You used that exact same situation and turned it into a purpose, which is what I love about that story. Yeah, no, I, I've never really thought about it that way, but I think I think you're spot on. There's, uh, especially in the space we're in now, helping personal brands. We we work with, you know, obviously big companies that are leveraging that as a kind of new growth strategy. But you know, volume wise, you know, quantity wise, like a lot of early stage startup personal brands, and there's a lot of them that are like the side hustle I'm kicking out doing my thing and we all know that most most businesses fail and I think that is the challenge if you aren't strategic about how to leverage what you're doing now to to kind of help you gradually get where you're trying to go which is what I did I wasn't manipulative about it where I was like no. hey I'm working here all day every day on my own stuff but I found a way to connect what I did all day, every day with what I really wanted to do long-term and the R&B I was doing, the everything I was doing to sharpen my mind and, and get better at it was just helping me in my current job all day, every day, but also in this new venture. And And I think if people can connect those dots, that's when they're more living into their purpose, but they're also mitigating some of the risk associated 100%. with just jumping around. 100%. And, and what they're... Instead, what meant, not all, I, I need to say this, I think it's a small minority that are very vocal, uh, for sure, but but many of them are, are th of this younger generation is just choosing to, you know, just half-ass their 40% <laughs> or half of their awake hours. And it, it's just not a good recipe for life, right? They have no yeah. purpose, and they're purposely not having a purpose. So, yeah, and I think, of mine. you know, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, and I, I know there's this whole quiet quitting kind of like <laughs> thing happening right now, the, all the buzz that's around it. But um, I think for me, you know, maybe it's a trend, maybe it's whatever, or it's been around for a little bit. I know there's debate about that, but I think eventually people people like think that doing whatever is going to make them happy or I'll go through the motions here to just be able to do whatever I want to do over here. And I think sooner and then later, people realize that that's not a recipe for anything exciting. And they, one, probably don't have the money to, you know, like do the things they want to do or live comfortably. And they're not fulfilled, right? They're not doing meaningful yeah. work. And yeah. and I think so it catches up. It's a trend. Unfortunately, it catches up with people. But that is one of the cool things about, you know, the work we do is like helping people kind of align with a deeper purpose or why like on Very an true. individual level but also do it in a way where that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go exit your company or start a side hustle or whatever like at the end of the day we want to 
understand Scott on a deeper level, what drives you, gets you excited and who you're trying to serve and how, what you're great at it, how to do it and hook that in to whatever business, you know, align that with whatever back end business you're trying to grow. And that's, that's the best of both worlds. So um, not always easy, but, but that's the best of both worlds. So you move from your entrepreneurial, um, well, what you're doing now is still entrepreneurial from your perspective, but you move from your yeah. your software gig, if I can put it that way, into mm-hmm. marketing, branding, advisory. Is that the right word? Uh, helping people, yeah, so, other entrepreneurs, and specifically on personal branding as opposed to corporate branding. And so my and and that's what we want to talk a lot about today because I'm a. I'm I'm uh, I'm fascinated by personal branding and what that means to mid-market and smaller businesses and how it can be used and integrated. So I I'm not so much as fascinated with, you know, an individual who's a an expert in their particular field who wants to be an author or whatever. Like that's that's cool. Mm-hmm. That's cool, but but more I'm interested in how does how does the owner manager of a manufacturing company in Dayton, Ohio, like why is this important to them or is it right? Yeah. And yeah, so true. let's start yeah. with what is personal branding? Let's define it. Yeah. I think that most people, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, most people think of a personal brand as those common professions that you said a second ago, speaker, author, online influencer, whatever right. it may be, they box it in. So like, hey, personal branding doesn't apply to me as a business of XYZ because a personal brand are those professions. And that's that's so far removed from what we do that like this is not applicable, right? Um, and I think that's the big unlock that we're trying to kind of like create for people is that personal brands are you, right? Like we all, we all are our own brand, right? And what the reality is that most people, very few kind of in the big scheme of things, are intentional about building their personal brand and and doing it in a way that's not speaker, author, influencer, but doing it in a strategic way that serves the business that they're trying to build, period. You take any type of business, right? And and it can apply. And so more specifically, you know, we look at kind of the gap is that people are not intentional about the online, you know, their online presence, right? Like, you know, you have a reputation, certain people know you, you're great at what you could, you do, and you don't need, you could have zero online presence and, and still run a successful business. There's people that do that, right? Um, But what we're seeing is that there's shifts in the market, shifts in consumer behavior, where it's becoming more and more important from a buyer's perspective that the online representation of your personal brand be really intentional, really built out, because that's where consumers are going more and more to understand who they're doing business with, know if they, you know, figure out if they like you, trust you, want to take the next steps, right? Um, and so that's the big gap is people, they say, I'm on social media, I do whatever, but they're not really intentional about taking their reputation, manifesting it online through an intentional personal brand, 
and making sure that it's positioned in a way that's in alignment and serves the back-end business to capitalize on these new consumer trends. So that's that's the big shift we're seeing um, in the market. And I'll give you some cool stats on that if you want to hear them. So you use the word reputation a few times in that mm-hmm. answer. And if one were to listen to Gary Vee, for example, he would tell us that if you don't like the word personal brand, just replace it with reputation because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think, like I said earlier, we all have a reputation right now. Um, and it's just, we kind of, it's an offline reputation for the most part, right? Um, and what we're saying is, hey, let's be really intentional about how you take your reputation and digitize it. You know, it's right. the digitization of your reputation is kind of one way to think about building out your personal brand um, in this modern age and and making more people know about your reputation. It's scaling well, up I your reputation. I think that latter part is where I'm driving with this because I, I think yeah. that, that a Gary Vee definition is half of the equation. In other words, your reputation, which to me comes yeah. down to, to trust or, you know, some metric like that um, defines who that person is. But I think it leaves out the attention part of this. How do you expand and get more breadth on that reputation? Right. Which yeah. is part of what you offer, I think. Yeah. I mean, we have something called our reputation formula. And it's, we say, results times reach equals your reputation. There you go. Yep. And we have, we all know them. There's people that have really killer results. They're like the best at whatever. They don't have a lot of reach. They don't have a big platform. So they've got a really good but small reputation, right? We similarly know people that are do really bad things. You know, your results are like awful you know, Hitler, you name it, like whatever, uh, they have huge reach, huge platform, right? So they have a really big, but bad reputation. And so what we say is our goal is to, we don't help people be great at anything, right? You're bringing the results to the table as far as working with us, right? I I thought you were to go straight to one of our favorite uh, social media real estate investors when you were going with a bad reputation instead you went right to oh, Hitler. Gosh. So that- <laughs> sorry, sorry. I say that's somebody we, we, we use like this is from our internal training when we're giving examples. Like Mother Teresa is one that's like right. really good results, really big reach, a big positive reputation. <laughs> Hitler's the opposite, obviously. So yeah, I went I went a little little rogue on you yep. there. But you get the idea is that I think a lot of people they have the results. Um, they just don't have the reach. And so they, their reputation is just and, not and vice as versa. big or as widely known. Yeah. Right. And so when we talk um, about, again, I always just struggle to help to define this for the audience because I, I, you know me, I spend a great part of my life wandering around and talking to owner managers and medium-sized businesses, executives and that size of business. And they're like, ah, pers-. they don't even know what personal brand means. And so yeah. really it's an individual reputation and a continuous effort to expand the breadth just to get more people to know who you are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's you have certain people, whether they're strategic partners or consumers or whoever, right? Whoever you do business with and interface with as a business. And it's saying, I want more of 
my ideal client or ideal strategic partners, right, to know of me, like me, and trust me that I'm going to take good care of them, right? right. I am an expert in such right. space. So how do you scale that up? And you do that through so let's, you know, kind of being more intentional. Let's talk for a minute about how how this is relevant to a business owner. And uh, I'll give you my example why I started thinking about personal branding. And so for years, I ran advisory companies, uh, merchant capital, corporate advisors, and ultimately ultimately, it evolved into my company now, which is Sinclair Range. And it didn't matter if we had four people working for us or 100 people working for us. On the advisory side, on the professional side, at the end of the day, if there was a, let's say we were helping banks with loans that they had that were problematic, or more specifically, the borrower that was having problems <laughs> paying the bank back because mm-hmm. we always, we don't work for the bank, we work for the company. And, but I, I just know for a fact that when there was a committee meeting at several financial institutions, at several banks, and they had a problem and they thought to themselves, we need to get this borrower some help, they'd say, okay, well, let's call Scott. They wouldn't say, let's call Range Corporate Advisors. They don't say, let's call Sinclair Range. They say, let's call Scott, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is a very Toronto, New York thing to do. Um, and just because you're part of that community, I'm part of that community, right? And mm-hmm. it used to drive me nuts. And I would go out of my way to try and remove myself personally to bring the corporate brand forward and and it never worked. And then I just gave up and I decided to embrace personal branding. That's my story. And I don't know what the right answer is. And I don't know how to mesh these things together. But if you're just, like I said, if you're, if you're running a mid-sized manufacturing company, company um, or distribution company in the Midwest of America, why is personal branding relevant to your business or is it? Yeah. So I think, yeah. So I'd say, yes, it is. Um, depending on the space you're in, it varies like how, right. Um, but I think I would start by answering the question with first, we have to understand shifts in consumer trends, Exactly. right? Like that, that's a little bit of why. Exactly. Okay. So we and did technology. This, you know, exactly. So, we did, you know, this was, um, you know, about a year ago now, but we did this national independent research study called the Trends in Personal Branding. And we're trying to just understand what's happening in the market that's going to help or hurt us, you know, as a company that specializes in this. And so this is just a subset of, you know, the, the statistics we got back. But this is what consumers were saying. Um, and this is a few sectors. So, I mean, you can kind of expand this out, but Americans want their top professional services from people who have an established personal brand. 61% of Americans believe their doctor should have an established personal brand. 58% believe their lawyer should. 55% think that their bank coach, financial advisor should. So those are industries where it's very specific that you're kind of doing business with one or more kind of people, you know, kind of smaller professional services type firms. But what that also tells me is that consumers in general are placing more of an emphasis um, when it comes to making buying decisions on what they see when they go 
Google or pull up Instagram or pull up TikTok or whatever platform that they spend a lot of their time on, they may still ask for a referral. So I'm not suggesting don't do the strategic outbound sales and ask right. for referrals. Still do that, of course. But I think what we're seeing is when somebody it needs to make a buying decision, they're going to go do research in the environments that they natively are used to operating in and spending a lot of time in and consuming information in. And those are more and more digital. And they're more and more, whether it be social media, you know, web, you know, just searching on Google, et cetera. So the question is, when they go check you out, what do they see? And, and when, when they see it, does it reinforce that you're great at what you do? Or is it a big hole of information that, that makes them question, like, is this company even up with the times or whatever? So I think that's a bit of it. And I think also we just know this as well is that when they do those searches, or even if it's pre-search and they're just consuming information online, is that they want to consume it from individuals. They don't want to consume it from some faceless uh, corporation, yeah. right? So it's a combination of... Because they of, perceive it as more authentic. It's more, it's humanizing yeah. the brand, okay. right? How do we humanize it and create more authentic connection with the consumer? And you do that with human to human connection, right? Yeah. Like that's where people really feel that I know the brand because I know the people behind the brand, especially the really important people behind the brand that in some cases may be the, the people I'm interfacing with when I do business with them. In some cases, it may not be. But that's becoming more and more important, not only where I go to check out and validate and how I determine if you're trustworthy or not but who I'm looking to connect with. And so I think that's where any business needs to say, how do we take what's truly unique about this business, which is, yeah, you have your unique methodologies and products and services, right? But those are not 100% unique. What's 100% unique is the are the great minds and the individuals within this business. And how do we intentionally elevate those personal brands or those individuals in a strategic way, again, I'm not saying help, help them spin up a side business. We're saying strategically yeah. position them as an extension of the corporate brand um, to use that to humanize it, to more authentically connect with consumers or strategic partners, and ultimately help you differentiate from the competition in the market. Um, and, and that's going to be this next generation of, of growth and strategic thinking. Not that corporate marketing and sales, like I'm not saying that goes away. This is a new tool in the toolbox that if you're not embracing it, other people are, and you're eventually going to, you know, you're going to, you're going to fall behind. Makes perfect sense to me. I was, uh, I'm often asked and as recently as yesterday from a, <laughs> I won't drop a name, although he's a friend of the show. You guys have, uh, you guys have watched him on here. <laughs> Having many, uh, many an episode with uh, with this fellow, but a you know a world leading attorney in his space, and he was asking me. He was he called me to compliment me on a show, and he said, "Hey, you're doing a great job on this content, and it's all really amazing. You're the only guy in your space who does this. Do you get any leads out of it?" And and I said, "No, I don't really." And then, you know, it's been three years, and whatever the time frame has been. And maybe I've had one or two. I don't recall. I think I do. But, you know, there's a million other benefits. But the primary benefit to me is that when I introduce through other mechanisms to somebody and they research who Sinclair Ranges, who Scott is, 
it shortens my sales cycle. It shortens it from nine months to a year of trying to convince somebody that I'm a legit player to nothing. It just shortens it to an immediate to an immediate uh, trust, if that's the right word, or recognition, or at least an acknowledgement that I'm in the space and that we've Absolutely. had some success, which I think is what you're saying. And I always tell people the story of when I was the age that you were when you started your entrepreneurial venture, and I started my entrepreneurial venture around that age as well. And um, this would have been back in the early to mid-1990s when we didn't have any of this internet stuff. And, and uh, I, I started in uh, Ottawa, Canada, which they called Silicon Valley North. So we were doing tech VC deals. And, and yeah. I did a lot of them, like hundreds in a couple of years. Um, but I used to publish, they had a, a newspaper in Ottawa called the Ottawa Business Journal, maybe. And in those days, it was, it was once, once a month published. And it was free in a newspaper box, an old, you know, old-fashioned newspaper box, and people would line up waiting for it. They were so excited to get the OBJ uh, when, on the day that it was due. And so I bought, um, I bought a place in that for, on a 12-month contract because I learned at my young age that if I were to commit to advertising, it becomes much cheaper than a, than a one-off. And I would do an old-school style uh, tombstone. Do you know what a financial tombstone is? Like XYZ. <clears throat> financed uh, ABC company and, you know, closed on the deal. So it was like a notice in the newspaper, but I would put a header on it and it would say results, not promises. And then it would be a transaction announcement. We had enough transactions closing every month that I could pick and choose and run one every month. And people would ask me the same question. They would say, hey, do you ever get a lead off that? Does anybody ever call you? And I'd say, no, and I don't expect them to. But I can't tell you how many times I was called to a meeting with the CEO of a, of a tech company that needed cash, and I'd go into the meeting, and the CEO would open his drawer and pull out every one of those ads, cut out of the newspaper, and set them on the table, right? And it would just immediately cut the length of this sales cycle. I wouldn't have to explain who I was, uh, what we do for a living. <clears throat> All that was gone. And then... When was it? Late 90s, early 2000s when blogs started. I started, or at least when I knew that blogs started, um, we yeah. started, I started writing blog posts once or twice a week. Same thing. Nobody really called from them, but every single person I met first read some of my blogs and they'd come to me and in a, in a first meeting, they would quote to me something that I'd written like 100% of the time. And again, it just eliminated that sales cycle and eliminated who I am, what is the risk associated with this guy? You know, if I'm competing against Ernst and Young, how do I do that? Well, it's through this content. And then what we do now in podcasts and um, we still do blog posts and all that sort of stuff, but building the personal brand. I think this is exactly what you're talking about. That was a, yeah. a long-winded story to reinforce your point, I hope. No, I mean, it's, it's spot on and that's good to see that it's, it's, proven over time, right? And what's happened is it's only gotten worse or more important now, because if you look at it, there's more information. We only have more noise, more information. And so now you have to say like, okay, how do we compete to get in front of our target audience and break through that noise? 
right? So content marketing and all these things you're talking about, advertising, they're still out there. But if all you rely on is, you know, your Google search rating, right? Or, you know, like, you know, running paid ads, like people nowadays, like, yeah, there's certain buying decisions where it's like, I have a real problem. I'm going to search. I'm going to just like, I have a leaking pipe. I need it right. Like now just, but most people, they want to, they want to know that you're kind of part of their life. Like you're providing value, you know, and, and it's like, I'm kind of in a loose digital relationship with these people. Even if I just see you showing up in my inbox or you're in my new podcast feed or something, and I don't listen to everyone or read every email, but there's a little element of like, you're, you're in the back of my head because you're, even if I delete, I'd tell you how many people are, I've subscribed to their newsletters, but it's like, I delete every time, but I see them and there's just a little fractional second where they pop up and that gives them a better chance to be who I think of when I'm ready to engage on something like that. So it's almost like necessary to make those investments to get to kind of break through the noise and build deeper relationships. But also I would say you can't, you can't just go through the motions with that stuff anymore. That's where doing the more humanized element, the more kind of authentic, some of the stuff that's grounded in personal branding because everybody's doing content marketing. Everybody's got podcasts, everybody's got whatever. So now you have to like take it to the next level. And I think that's where we're saying humanizing, be authentic in what you're putting out, you know, like understanding kind of how to, how to nurture long-term, yeah. et cetera. It's like, it's, it's more advanced now, but a lot of the same fundamentals are still present that you mentioned. So let's take an example. Let's just make up an example right now of somebody running a good business. Let's say Mary is running a plumbing contractor somewhere in the U.S. and and it's Mary's Plumbing Contracting. That is her corporate brand. Um, mm-hmm. And now she's going to build Mary a personal brand. How do those brands interrelate? How do they mesh those together or not mesh those together? How do they spend their time? on those two different, you know, because, because her, her business in this hypothetical example for sure is, you know, posting a picture on Instagram once a week and has a LinkedIn page and what have you, or a Facebook page, probably in that industry or both. How, mm-hmm. how do the personal brand and the corporate brand interrelate? Yeah. So in those settings where, where the, the intent of building the personal brand is hyper-focused on driving traffic and growth of this core business, um, then we're basically, basically going to say, hey, let's do some deep work on Mary, I think was the name you gave her. Um, so let's just understand, you know, especially if she's the founder of this business or, or a more senior person, she has got a, an internal drive behind why this business exists. Right. Like there's some deeper why, like that she started the the business. Right. Yeah. The purpose behind it. So what's cool is like in these smaller businesses, you know, a lot of your individual why and your individual purpose is heavily the purpose and the why of the business that is bigger than you also. Right. So we want to kind of ground ourselves in some of that, which we say this is kind of part of what we would call your brand DNA. Right. What is unique about you? And and we can even kind of transfer that to what's unique about your business. Right. Um, But we want to ground ourselves in like, what's the core problem you're solving? Who are you solving it for? How do you do it? X, Y, Z. So there's a little bit of that positioning work to kind of connect you and your why and purpose as an individual with the products and services 
you sell through the business and who you're serving at the end of the day. And that makes it a little more authentic and real and drives, you know, creates a little more drive, right? Right. But then we would say, hey, Mary doesn't need her own website. We don't need Mary.com. Like that's a distraction. That's that's not what we're talking about here. We need Mary's plumbing business.com. Right. That's where we're trying to drive traffic to. Yeah. But what do we say? Well, how do we better elevate Mary? right in the market so more people know, like, and trust Mary and think of Mary as an expert and thus their business as being really good at what they do. Well, we have to get Mary out front more, right, with content and thinking about, and so what's the content that their consumers care about, right, um, is based on every business, but let's say it's DIYing stuff around the house, right? Like, I, I've got a plumbing issue and the first thing I think I can probably fix it myself. So what I do, I go to YouTube and I'm, I'm searching YouTube videos on how to fix plumbing. And if Mary's hyper local and doing all these great things to get out there with real value add content, because Mary's an expert as the founder of this company or whatever, right? Putting out value add content that serves the audience and helps her build relationships pre-purchase, right? Um, then what happens when those people try to do it themselves, can't do it, who do they think of, right? They think yeah. of they think of Mary. Like Mary has been giving me free value add content for a while. So, you know, naturally in that type of industry, you're gonna do paid search and some things because it's kind of like I've got a leak, I need help now. So in those types of industries, you maybe are putting a little more emphasis on Kind of some of those intent-based well, marketing. Well, ex- except kind of that if Mary has turned into a rock star, then it's the same discussion we had about my tombstones and my blog posts, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. They, exactly. They do the paid search. They find the the corporate brand, the corporate website, but then they dig into it, and Mary's got a bunch of content on there about her why. Exactly. And you're going to choose that business instead of the other. I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think. If if it's I think the plumbing thing gets a little weird because usually people are like crap I got that's why leak. I picked it's it. like I, yeah <laughs> yeah it's, and so maybe in those like if you know make sure you have an online presence make sure people know of you as this expert in your community or your you know that knows everything about this you can do some light stuff but usually what happens is when they get in trouble you want to make sure you show up pretty high and they've heard of you right you there may be three paid search rankings on Google. And it's like, oh crap! Which one of these do I pick? Exactly. And it's like, if because they you're not have going to number five. You, yeah, yeah, I've been hearing about Mary because she's pushing out value add content. She's showing up in different ways as an extension or the founder of this business that I know of. Oh yeah, well, like I've heard of her before, right? Through these other digital, yep. you know, kind of consumption mechanisms. So I'm going to pick number three instead of number one. Right. You know, and I think more and more, to be honest with you, a lot of people are going to the first organic search result um, because they know people are just paying to get to the top of the list. And that doesn't necessarily mean that's the best. That That's what people paid to get to. But you had to earn that number one organic spot. And so there must be something about right. that. But I, I think maybe it's not as critical in like a plumbing type setting, but you know, all these other businesses where it's not like critical issue, I need help immediately. You're naturally a little bit of a longer sales cycle. And then you're you're now saying, how do we differentiate from competition? How do we build relationships prior to them wanting to or needing our services, etc.? We have a, a friend of the show who's done a couple of 
podcast for us, Outway Socks in uh, Victoria, BC. The founder's name is Rob Fraser. You can look up his episodes if you want. A fantastic entrepreneur. And uh, he sells a, like an unreasonable amount of socks for any, for any company to sell. And I'm not going to do a good job explaining his brand, so I won't even try. But he is an ex-professional athlete, and he is, is in some way bringing together the, the values and the work and the principles of being a professional athlete with a sport, with, with business. I, I, sorry, Rob, I did a terrible job at that. And, and it's been a tremendous success. And he's a great, he's a great marketer, uh, on a, on a direct to consumer model. I'm sure on every model, but he it's primarily a direct to consumer and he's built both a corporate brand and a personal brand and he has, in some way, I have no idea how pulled off the the balance between those two. What I'm interested in in this part of the question is when he goes to sell that business and exit three five years from now, if he's erred too far into being the rock star face of this, that's not transferable in a sale. Do we ever worry or think about? what I would call in the valuation business, personal goodwill, that the, the face of the company is too, is too prevalent uh, for the business and that's not transferable in a sale when you're trying to exit. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So what we always try to get really clear on uh, in the early days of working with any client is what kind of business are you trying to build? Right. And if, if that business is heavily based on you as an individual speaker, author, influencer, coach, like whatever, then maybe the business as a whole, the domain name, like all these things that really are kind of the wrapper, the logo, that the essence of the business top to bottom is you as an individual. Because at the end of the day, without you, people aren't going to be able to get what they're paying for. Right. Um, but if you fall in another camp where you're trying to use your personal brand to drive growth of a business, but that business is bigger than you as an individual, right? That's going to be most businesses. Then what we're going to say is, one, make sure the way we position the core business is not Scott Sinclair. It's Sinclair Range. And you even put your name in Sinclair Range, which gets a little bit, you know, dicey. But, you know, again, you may be at a point where you're not caring about like selling that. Was, that. that was so, just part of me giving up on the whole issue. Yeah, exactly. Um, but most people are going to have some company name and logo and, and company brand that is not them at all. Like they influenced it, right? But but it's not them. So it can stand alone. And so so that's the first key thing is make sure the way you pit position the business is aligned with the type of business it is. So that makes it easier for you to separate at some point. The next key thing is you're naturally going to be um, in the early stage and even mid stage and later stage, like you're going to be a key driver of growth of that business, period. If you're trying to really grow it, there's no outsourcing that. You're a thought leader, you're a key person in the business. But what we would say is that if you're doing this right, that you are not the only personal brand that's positioned as an extension of this business, right? If it's a smaller company, you may not have the ability to 
really activate, let's call more individuals to be out front doing the personal branding stuff. Um, but at scale, you shouldn't have a single point of failure. Like it shouldn't be that, oh man, everybody's pathway into this business is I go to Scott and then I go from Scott into right. whatever business. And then if Scott's gone now, oh crap, like people, you know, so like at scale, you are just one of multiple personal brands that occupy different strategic roles in this business. And thus, we're trying to push out there to make more and more of your ideal client know of them, think of them as thought leaders and trusted experts in the space that take great care of them. So that mitigates your risk there and makes it, you know, where you can transfer it and, and, and you, you absorb, you kind of like mitigate the blow or negative effect on the company. Let's talk about the, you know, we already said that consumer behavior and technology are driving the importance of personal branding. And I guess I would argue that the consumer behavior uh, shift is also driven by technology. So at the end of the day, it's technology that has driven this, I think. And mm -hmm. let's look to the future on that. Uh, you put out a, a post the other day, which I didn't read for fear that I wouldn't understand any of it. But uh, <laughs> blockchain, Web3, NFTs, how do they fit into all of this? Yeah, it's and and I'll I'll go ahead and say on the front end two things. One, none of this is financial advice, right? And then two, <laughs> uh, that I I don't um, I don't have my head fully wrapped around all of this because it's changing by the second, and it's you know like any new emerging industry, it's it's just it's wild, it's the wild west and it's crazy. So I'm learning just as everybody's learning. But there's a couple themes that I think are really important for people to wrap their head around. When you look at blockchain technology, your, your understanding of what that is, you may know what that is, or you may not. Your understanding or your window into blockchain may be cryptocurrency. Oh, I buy Bitcoin or I don't right. or Ethereum or like it may be a cryptocurrency thing. It may be like, you know, decentralized finance, the ability to lend and, and earn yields, all that stuff. So whatever exposure you have, if any, to this new Web3 and blockchain and kind of crypto ecosystem can vary. But underneath the hood of all of that, and you probably picked up on some of this theme a little bit, is this idea of decentralization. Okay? So like decentralized finance, you know, whatever. And so what that tells me is that the current mode of operation is very centralized. Central entities, central corporations, central banks, central whatever that everybody goes to to get what they need. And then it goes and that's that hub, right? And it's because of just the back end technology and infrastructure and everything of how business right. has been done for like many years. We now have some new underlying technology and blockchain that's letting us do a lot of these digital things, things as crazy as transferring ownership of money i.e. cryptocurrency, that is powered by tech and not by some big centralized entity, right? And so, so what that tells me is the influence that centralized entities have is gradually being, they're, they're not playing as significant of a role. It's shifting to decentralized kind of things. And what is that? I actually refer to this as decentralized influence, right? Okay. You know, so that's what I look at this as is that the influence is not not going away completely, but 
all of the influence is not just contained in the big corporate entity anymore. That influence is now decentralized. And where is it shifting to? It's shifting to individuals um, because this new technology, blockchain, is basically saying, hey, the company doesn't own everything. You as an individual have more ownership in things. And so naturally, you have more influence. Um, and I, I, I haven't like fully formulated all this, but I'll go ahead and like riff on it here. We'll, we'll have some fun with it. But when I look at it as what are the elements of influence then? If you're saying, oh, influence is shifting. I say, well, what are the elements of influence? I think it's your ability to communicate. Can you freely communicate or not? If, if you have a muzzle on you, you can't influence people. So you have to be able to freely communicate with your audience, with people to share a message that hopefully moves them in the right direction. Money. Do you have money to, how do you have financing or backing to have influence and have big impact? We know tons of people that, you know, basically have, can make big impact. They don't have the funding to, to scale it, right? You know? Right. And then the, the third thing, element of influence is I would say your reputation. You know, that's that third thing. And so what we're seeing is that with this new blockchain technology, that communication is no longer throttled by centralized entities. You could take it all the way to China, where they're basically throttling the internet and saying, like, hey, you can't get to certain things. There's new blockchain-based, like, internet service providers that are providing pathways for people really? to just get to information and communicate. Yes. Okay. Um, there's now coming online what's called decentralized social media. No longer is it Meta or TikTok or Microsoft and LinkedIn, right? That that can at Twitter that can have kind of centralized control over. I own your followers. I can kind of dictate through the algorithm who sees it, who doesn't. These decentralized social media platforms basically say no. The individual owns their following. The individual, and it's one following by the way, which is really exciting. I don't have my LinkedIn followers, right. or my Instagram followers, yeah, yeah. or whatever. It's like yeah. Scott is one person. Scott has one pool of following. Scott can freely communicate with his followers, period. Nobody dictates that. So that's a shift. Finance, right? We just said like where more people have access to money. It's no longer big banks. I can't get to loans. We're seeing a, a distribution where more people have access to funding to have bigger impact. And then reputation, that's kind of an evolving area. But what we're seeing is that no longer are there going to be all these question marks of what are Scott's credentials? What did he do? Is he legit? so on and so forth, it's going to be your track record as an individual is recorded digitally on the blockchain. And I know that Scott's killed it and there's no right. question about it. He's great or whatever. So I know that's a lot, but it's like there's some big shifts happening that I think are only going to drive. Uh, is an this anything role. out of this that's tangible, like actionable, I guess is the word I'm looking for today, or is it yeah. something just to keep an eye on? Or ten years from yeah, now. I, I'd say I'd say eighty five percent of it is keep an eye on it. It's right. too early. Um, some of the coolest things we're seeing that I think is um, is actually you know accessible now. It's kind of like how on the bleeding edge do you want to be? Is actually using some of these new what I would like to call shared ownership capabilities. NFTs are usually how they're packaged, right? But it's basically the ability to create fractional ownership in something could be the whole business could be a product or service offering or whatever and basically letting the community that you've created and want to activate 
now that they have a shared ownership in whatever this thing is you're selling, they have additional incentive to sell it. We've seen this with some book launches. This is a very really? personal brand type. Yep. Where where you take a percentage of the royalties. The yeah, author yeah, yeah. Does. So they've securitized the, I guess I shouldn't use that word with NFTs because people <laughs> freak out. Yeah. But, but they've securitized yeah, yeah. uh, former royalties. Exactly. To fund it exactly. in, a, in a crowdsourcing sense. And then the NFT would bring, contract would bring other bells and whistles. Like you get to hang out with the author for More dinner utility. or something. Exactly. So what's cool is you can take that construct of, hey, I'm selling something that creates an initial injection of capital to do whatever you want with. But then through that injection of capital, people have fractional ownership of whatever this thing is, like what all is included, right? Um, Which then gives them more incentive to want to go promote it. Because the more demand they drive for this thing, the value, their their shares, quote unquote, go up. Oh, yeah. Like Gary, Gary V is the first one that sold like a, a stupid number of books, like because he strategically. Wow, but he also he also sold about $70 million of NFT doodles because he has the distribution. Oh, yeah. And that's not a complaint, like God bless him. But I don't think that's yeah. a, an example for everybody else. Like he's just well, on, yeah, he's yeah. just on another level when it comes to distribution and following. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, he's got a huge platform, so we obviously have to take that into account. But I think there's no question, the easiest way I I think to answer this is that there's no question that if you were able to incentivize your community or your clients, let's call them, to say that, hey, this is no longer a, you know, arm's length relationship. Like, you're buying something for me. Hey, this is great. Like, we'll continue. No, no, we're working on this together. Yeah, we're in this together. And, and it doesn't mean they have, you know, like they have ownership and yeah. the, like they have fractional ownership of something. It's a, so it's a modern think, multi, multi-level marketing. Yeah. Well, it, what we've <laughs> seen is that it's, it's, it's called an, a, an aligning of incentives, yeah. right? Is that, you know, backend investors, as well as the leaders of the company, kind of the core employees and the clients now are aligned in what they're trying to do. And it's like, Hey, well, if you believe in this, okay, invest in it. Well, and also if you believe in it, let's go out and promote it and make it even bigger and better. And oh, by the way, you're going to get rewarded for that. This is not just something, hey, thank you for your efforts, Scott. It's like you have fractional ownership in this thing that you can sell on a secondary market at any point. Yeah, that's really money. cool. So, uh, Jeremy, yeah, I think it's pretty cool. Shortly, when we wrap this up, I'm going to ask you how people might reach you and why they why you would want them to do this. But but yeah, I'm going to do that in a minute. But just while we're talking about nfts in the future is that something you would help somebody with at brand builders is that part of your offering so we don't do that in-house well okay. where we're at is we're kind of in the r&d phase where we're trying to understand what are emerging capabilities um that like what we just talked about how how does that impact the work we do with clients so we're kind of innovating at the intersection of, of personal branding and blockchain technology just to see what's capable we if it when it comes to actually activating on that, we would refer out to our partners and our partner gotcha. network uh, if okay. anybody was like, Hey, I wanna But I people wanna should reach it. out to you to start that. Yeah, I think yeah. I, we would love to be having those types of conversations right. just right. to kind cool. of innovate a- alongside. Well, as usual on this podcast, I walk in fearful that I have about ten minutes of things to talk about and I get a quarter of the way through and we're out of our hour. Jeremy, this is called the uh, Wooding Momentum Podcast. 
It's for entrepreneurs and business owners, executives, um, anybody who's interested in that space. And the reason we talk about momentum is because I do a lot of turnaround work and I believe that momentum is everything in business. And when things are going bad, I try to teach strategies or not teach, that's not the right word, but present strategies uh, to help people deal with their adversity and get things moving in the right direction. And I ask every guest that joins our show for three of maybe your strategies uh, that you have used or rely upon when things aren't going well. And that could just be even in your personal life. It doesn't have to be in business, but whatever is just an open question to wrap yeah, things up. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a, it's a good one. Um, I would say for me, if I just, and, and I'm trying to do this in a way that does blend more of just how I operate period, personal and professional. Um, I think that, it's just so noisy out there. If you just look at our lives in general, that the first key thing that I try to do period is create space, right? right. Like you, you have got, like if you are just overwhelmed with information and doing too much, like it's really hard to think clearly. So like step one, and that's part of this personally for me is like morning routines and meditation and, right. you know, like during like things like that. But I think you have to be able to to stop and create space. So true. So like that would be be like the first thing and how to do that, right, is, is a conversation itself. But like that would be one thing. And then for me, the next big thing um, that I would just share is, and this is core to just how I operate and what I believe in is, is focus on, on being great at, at what you're great at. You know, it's like, you know, I think we it's so tempting because of all the fast moving stuff and, and opportunities and information out there to try to be a lot of things to a lot of people and get spread thin. And then you're average at a lot of stuff. And so for me, it's always just being able like when you pause and have the space to reflect and think, recenter on what you're great at and then just hyper focus, like let's align around what we're great at. And, and we've had to even do and that win. in Brain Builders Group. And just win yeah. that space and then yeah. move on to the next one iterate yeah. yeah dominate that space yeah. and then you can iterate out if you stay disciplined but those are for me um i just yeah I've, I've lived it you know but prior to brand builders group and even at brand builders group we spun up some saw some great opportunities in the early stages of the business spun up new lines and about a year into it realized we needed to spin them down because that wasn't what we were great at we needed to stay dominant focused and dominate right. our space and if we do that everything else will take care of itself at some point so Amazing. I love that first one as well uh, about creating space. I, I always, I always tell people uh, close to me that the best, every good idea I've ever had came to me in the shower or walking uh, in nature by myself with the dog or what have you. It's creating that space that allows the brain to just to just to roam and be creative. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else uh, I missed, Jeremy? Anything else you want to talk about? No. This has been awesome. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I appreciate you making the time and coming on. Uh, how do people reach you and and uh, why do you want them to reach you? Yeah, so if, if you want to check out my personal brand, right? Uh, <laughs> if you want to just connect with me online, I'm the Jeremy Weber, uh, 1B, W-E-B-E-R, um, at, on all the socials. So, I mean, if you want to hang out out there and want to check out just free value-add content, you can check out that. Uh, what I would say is if anybody's super interested in what we're talking about and how it applies to their business and, you know, whether you're ready to move or not, just want to kind of explore this, 
we actually do what's called a free brand strategy call. It's, you know, straight value add. It's actually people that know what they're talking about, you know, on this stuff. It's not just a, a salesperson. So we'd love to just have, it's like an hour long conversation to try to understand what you're trying to do and just try to help you kind of make progress. So if you want to just have a call with what, with a member of our team, we, we'd love to talk with you. And to do that, you go to freebrandcall.com forward slash JW. And that's freebrandcall.com forward slash JW. And you can request a free brand strategy call and um, talk with somebody from our team. Amazing. And I will tell people in um, full disclosure that I am personally a brand builder's client. I think that the, the value that these guys offer is insane. So check it out. And what, what is the brandbuildersgroup.com? Is that what it is? Or Yeah, that's the, the straight website if you want to go there as well. Thanks, everybody. We'll touch base with you next week. Jeremy, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Scott.